It's Friday, August 18th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. With over 100 dead, the casualty count from the Maui fire is the highest in the U.S. in the last 100 years. The reasons are many, but still being investigated. There are drought, power line, critically low water levels, but also sirens, lack of sirens. At a news conference a couple days ago, Herman Andea, Maui's emergency chief, came in for this interrogation from a reporter for CBS. Do you regret not sounding the sirens? I, I do not. And the reason why... And So many people said they could have been saved if they had time to escape. Had a siren gone off, they would have known that there was a crisis emerging. And as we know, so many bodies were found in the ground as the flames Do you want him to give you the answer? Or I do, do you want but to I want to well, get let him finish. The, let him finish his I'm answer. I'm sorry. There's a lot of people... Well, you're talking and I'm letting him talk. If you want to talk, come up here. I'm ready for the answer. Then wait. The sirens, as I had mentioned earlier. Interceding in the tense exchange, as you heard there, was Maui Mayor Richard Bisson. When Endaya was finally asked to give his answer, here's his explanation. The public is trained to seek higher ground in the event that the siren is sounded. In fact, on the website of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, the firing guideline is provided. If you are in a low-lying area near the coastline, evacuate to high grounds, inland or vertically to the fourth floor and higher of a concrete building. Alerts may also come in the form of a wireless emergency alert. Had we sounded the siren that night, we were afraid that people would have gone Malka. And if that was the case, then they would have gone into the fire. And so that is the reason Malka why. means up the mountainside, which he said, and this is true, would mean going into the fire if you go up the mountain. As in the same press conference, which got so testy, the press secretary had to remind reporters of the spirit of aloha. Governor Josh Green confirmed Chief Andaya's claim that sirens mean head towards the mountains because the threat is coming from the ocean. When in this particular situation, people actually save themselves by jumping into the ocean. Here's Governor Green. It is true that when I first moved to Hawaii, people told me, if you hear a siren, it's a tsunami and go to high ground. I'm just saying as an individual, when I came here as a doctor, that was made very clear to me when I lived on Black Sand Beach uh, in Punalu'u. I was there, again, when I was a doc, not before I was, you know, long before I was a legislator or governor, and I experienced large wildfires that were up Malka. happens very frequently in Ka'u. And in those cases, had a siren gone off, I would have been expecting a tsunami to come. That's what our <coughs> mentality was. Days earlier on Face the Nation, Hawaii's member of Congress, Jill Takuda, said the same thing. You might think it's a tsunami, by the way, which is our first instinct. Yeah. You would run towards land, which in this case would be towards fire. So with the embattled chief seemingly accurately following protocol, the governor backing him up and a member of the House delegation agreeing, Endaya was fired. Well, he wasn't fired. He left because of health reasons. He was clearly pushed out. The clamor and pushback was too much. Now, transcripts from years-old meetings were unearthed, and Endaya referred to sirens as a last resort. But what he meant was they often can't be heard indoors. They are useful mostly when a sudden wave is approaching. Text messages, TV, radio, all better for reaching most residents. And those warning systems were used during the Maui fires. 
So while he said last resort, he was actually trying to convey that sirens are a secondary or tertiary means of notification. But that wasn't Endaya's phrasing, even though over the years he had to clarify his muddled expression in public safety board meetings. In 2019, he said, the other thing too is, you know, the sirens is for like no notice events, primarily for no notice type events. So in case of like a tsunami, that's where you want to get people off the beach, right? And so that's where the sirens will come in handy. That's the reason why you have most of our sirens are on the coastline. That's the value of the coastline that does so, you know. And then a council member said, yes, but I, I think sirens are important. And Endaya said, but yeah, I wanted to clarify that. I'm not trying to discount. I'm not trying to say that, oh, we don't need sirens. I mean, I think we need every mode of communication possible. And then in 2020, he addressed the council again, saying, really, as I've mentioned before, the sirens are a kind of last resort. And I've, I've said this before. Oftentimes, many of us don't even hear the sirens because we're indoors, you know. We may be in a house that we may not be able to hear a siren outside. You know, like, for instance, all of you are in your homes. You may not be able to hear the siren. You're not going to believe this, but the council member said, yes, but sirens are important. And once more, Endaya said, sorry, I didn't mean to diminish the value of sirens. I totally agree with you, chief, that the sirens are important. And that's why a lot of monies and a lot of effort are going into fixing the sirens. So most definitely, it's... Uh, I'm sorry, I wasn't meaning to diminish the value of sirens. Cut to a couple days ago, NBC News headline, a last resort. Maui's emergency management director repeatedly downplayed sirens, records show. Well, not really. He just communicated poorly. But when you think about it, given the stakes and the task at hand, which was literally a means of communication, and Daya's ouster might be a scapegoating, but in a way, it's also a foreseeable consequence to this sudden calamity. On the show today, superconductors, room temperature superconductors, I call balderdash. But first, movie studios are having a tough time getting people into seats at theaters. But according to our next guest, John Campia, host of the podcast and live stream, The John Campia Show, the recent Barbenheimer double feature was really successful. It might not be the beginning of things turning around for the industry, but maybe it'll be close. John Campia up next. John Campia is at the intersection of broadcasting and fandom and criticism and industry reportage for the movie industry. He's worked for AMC. He's worked and kind of curated a whole bunch of bloggers. He has an excellent podcast an eponymous podcast. Now he joins us to talk about a couple of the latest blockbusters and what the future of blockbusterdom is. John, welcome to The Gist. Good to be here, man. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So a couple of weeks ago, I had a guy named Sonny Bunch on. He does a very good podcast and he writes for The Bulwark. And at that time, he was making a point, and I think it was a compelling point, that 2023 was just an Anis Horribilis for movies. You know, you could list Fast 10 and Indy 5 and Transformers 7 and Quantumania and The Flash. Bomb, 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 bomb. Maybe one of them you would defend as actually a good movie, but it didn't really matter to moviegoers. And what Sonny was saying is we really, these movies are costing so much and have been so met with so much indifference from the audience that it really could put a studio or two out of business. Now, as I speak to you, we have experienced the Barbenheimer phenomenon. And as I think you're reporting on your show a couple of days ago, second best July ever. Yeah. Am I to understand that this Barbenheimer turned everything around? 
I don't know if we can say it turned everything around. I mean, look, when you go down that laundry list of like a lot of the significant films that did not perform up to what expectations were, right? Um, I think there's a lot of extenuating circumstances for each one individual. Like, if, for instance, if we go back to Fast 10, right? Dominic Toretto, you're about to learn all about fear. Boom. You built such a beautiful life filled with love and family. I never got that chance. You stole that from me. Fast 10's box office has been in a decline, on a regular decline recently. I mean, Fast 9 was just, an, and I say this as a Fast and Furious fan, Fast 9 was a steaming pile of garbage. Uh -huh. And, you know, and the box office declined on it. People went to go see it. People didn't like it. It stands to reason that this new movie would make even less. And this new movie wasn't all that great. But, you know, and, but even with that being said, the movie still crossed over $700 million, right? Then we look at something like Indiana Jones. I don't believe in magic. But a few times in my life, I've seen things. Well, the reality is, is that's a franchise that is uh, my grandparents saw, right? And and I love Indiana Jones, don't get me wrong, but it's been a long time and it left a lot of people off with Crystal Skull with a rather poor taste and stuff. Uh, Mission Impossible. Reality is a lot of people had expectations it would be a billion dollar film, but as I kept trying to remind people, no Mission Impossible movie ever hit a billion dollars. Did we expect it to make more than 522 million? Sure, we did. Transformers. I mean, that was a franchise that got ran into the ground in the last film they did, Bumblebee, which was excellent, by the way. That movie didn't make much money at all. And the look of this movie, which they should have done a Bumblebee sequel instead of this, it looked like the old Michael Bay, but it wasn't Stephen Cappell Jr. directed, and he's a very good director. But, you know, I'm not surprised that people didn't run out in mass to see it. So that's happened, but each film along the way has had its own individual story. But then we come to Barbenheimer. If there is a bankable name in the world of directors, Christopher Nolan might be the only one. I mean, Quentin Tarantino will bring out an audience. Steven Spielberg's the greatest director of all time, but West Side Story has shown us and Meet the Fablemans has proved that just because his name's attached to it doesn't necessarily bring out the audiences. So there, there's that for Oppenheimer. And then Barbie, I mean, who saw Barbie coming? Who on earth saw Barbie coming? Not to the billion dollar extent that we've uh, we've seen it rake in. But I guess my question is, even though these franchise films, sure, there's always a different story. And I guess failure has a uh, hundred fathers or <laughs> while at the same time being an orphan, there's a little bit of a through line. And one is that the studios have gotten into the franchise business and yep. it seems like they are going to keep making franchises until they make one that really pisses the audience off. That might not be the one that doesn't make money. Then they'll make one past then. And that's when the audience revolts. Although, as you say, maybe a bunch of these other Transformer movies were the bad ones. Maybe Bumblebee as the good one wasn't enough to save them. But it does seem like that's the model. We're just going to keep going to the pump until the audience tells us, please stop pumping. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And and the Transformers is a great example of that. You know, but it didn't take just one. Like it was, as an audience member, it was fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on you. Fool me three times, shame on you. And then finally, right, eventually, right. you kind of fall off on that. But no, look, one of the biggest obstacles that any studio has to deal with when trying to launch a movie is making the movie recognizable. You know, making the movie, it's, they call it spreading awareness. They want to gauge the awareness of the film. And when you start with 
a already existing franchise, you've got half the work done for you already, right? So when you can say Barbie 2, you're going to have a whole lot more advantage than say trying to do the latest Ben Affleck film, Air, which, you know, there's no awareness of it. People don't understand it. But hey, you say Transformers 5 or you say Star Wars Episode 10 or you say yeah, Avengers 6 or you say whatever. The awareness is there. And so they're going to keep going back. To, hey, look, Joker was supposed to be a one and done movie. Mm-hmm. That was it. Never supposed to have a sequel. Well, you get nominated for Best Picture. You make a billion dollars and Joaquin Phoenix wins the Academy Award for Best Actor. Suddenly you have a very recognizable IP, but, but you're right. It's the, the philosophy seems to be, let's keep riding it until we, the wheels fall off. And that is going to cost the studios a lot of money in the long run. So they're going to have to change that philosophy. Isn't it ultimately though, the enemy of creativity? I mean, I know you love uh, many of these franchises and you love comic books and you love comic book movies. If this mindset was in place when the com- before there were comic book movies when these characters were being made as comic books who would who would have the wherewithal and latitude to create a doctor strange or an x-men or something that didn't exist before it seems very limiting to me well and it's always been i, I mean look let's look at it this way to me there are two um academy award categories for example of screenwriting right there's not just one there's original screenplay and there's what called adapted screenplay i've always contended for years that it takes a lot more creativity to do an adapted screenplay because you know they what is what is it they say that limitation is the mother of invention yeah so it's when you actually have something that's there and you have to try to thrive and be creative within it it can be a little bit you know, more challenging to something like that. Uh, to your point about Dr. Strange, the existing IP, it would be almost impossible to today to out of nowhere, start from scratch, something like that, because there was no recognizable brand associated with it already. Right. So it'd be difficult, but I would suggest this, that I don't necessarily believe franchises stifle creativity. I suggest that it actually takes an abundance of creativity to effectively continue a franchise, you know, because you, now you've already laid the groundwork. How do you continue to thrive and be creative within a recognizable IP? You still got to come up with interesting stories, good character journeys, all that kind of stuff. And it becomes a little bit more difficult within a franchise, but I, I don't believe that franchises in and of themselves zap creativity. I think they should be a breeding ground for it. But unfortunately, like to what you were saying about the fact that these studios want to run these franchises into the ground, they tend to abandon a lot of the creativity when they get into the franchise because they think they can just coast. And yeah. we've seen that with, with a number of things. Yeah. So the great fortunes for uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer, that's great for Warner, that's Warner Brothers, that's great for Universal. Does that do, obviously it doesn't help Disney, but does it do anything in general for these other studios that didn't have one of these two hits? Does it say to them, all right, this is still possible. We have a viable strategy moving forward. Or even let's look at Oppenheimer and okay, we're not going to you, you know, get Christopher Nolan to direct our next movie, but maybe something like that a well-done biopic with a lot of stakes that really talks about deeply humane issues. Maybe there's a chance for that to have success in the theaters. It's possible. The problem is, you know, I was talking to a good friend of mine the other day who said, you know, does the success of Barbie and Oppenheimer and say the struggles of something like an Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania 
does that show us that the, what the audience is really looking for is original films? Mm -hmm. The problem is for every one Barbie, there's seven airs or there's seven other truly original films that came out that none of the audience bothered to go to see. Right. You know, there was, there's a movie coming out this week called Blue Beetle. You are a superhero, cabron. You're the Blue Beetle. I could use that arsenal right about now. God, you never ask. The long range opening weekend projections for that movie was $17 million opening weekend. Then Barbenheimer exploded. The enthusiasm that movie audiences showed going into and coming out of Barbie and Oppenheimer made the long range projections for Blue Beetle almost double from 17 million. It's now projected at 30. Oh. And there was a really fascinating article in Variety today that showed that nearly one quarter, 22%, of people that went to go see Barbie had not been to the movie theater since before the pandemic. So there's a couple of lessons for there that come out of that. One is that as we look back at movies like Mission Impossible or maybe even Transformers or something else along those lines, that's telling us that there was still a good percentage of the movie going audience pre-pandemic that has still not come back to the movie theaters yet. And now they have with Barbie. But you keep mentioning air, which I liked. It's a very taut script. It was um, a history of, well, even if we don't know what air was, we understand who Michael Jordan was. And even if he yep. doesn't appear in the movie, uh, we could get our minds around that. I don't want to just pick on that movie. I don't know how well it did or didn't do, but it just seemed to be, well, they put it on a streamer and you watch it like you would a Netflix movie or you watch it like you would an Amazon Prime movie or whichever streamer you subscribe to. What is the point? This wasn't the case with Barbie and it wasn't the case with Oppenheimer. How do the, the studios have got to know that by, you know, the pandemic affected this, but by putting so much content on these streamers for free, you're training people to think of going to the theater is just much less special. And from a practical standpoint, just not necessary. Wait a couple of weeks. You'll see it for free. The thing that proves your point is you don't have to look any further than Pixar. Pixar was always, any Pixar movie coming out pre, prior to the pandemic was seen as an event. When a brand new Pixar film was coming, that was an event. That's something you had to go see, something you had to bring your family to see. Well, what happens is once you got into the, into the pandemic and there was a change of leadership at Disney where Bob Chapek became CEO, suddenly they had Disney's animation, whether it's Pixar or Disney animation, they started taking what would have been event films in theaters and decided they were going to drop everything on streaming, whether you're talking about uh, the Jamie Foxx voiced soul, right. or you're talking about Luca, or you talk about Turning Red, which by the way, brilliant film, yeah. should have won the Academy Award for Best Animated Picture. Again, dumped right on streaming. Now what's happened after we've come- I all of those movies, by the way. Yeah, I, I like them all too. Now what's happened when we come out of it now? Well, they put Lightyear in theaters, but by that point- they had trained, to your point, they had trained the audience that Pixar movies are now movies you watch at home. Now, it didn't help that Lightyear wasn't very good, mm -hmm. but then they followed that up with, they got a movie in theaters right now that's fantastic. It's called Elemental. It's wonderful, but it's barely been able to crawl over the $400 million mark because again, they spent so much time 
training the audience and conditioning the audience that ah, Pixar movies are things you watch at home. And they took away that event feel of them. And it's going to take them a while to get it back if they can get it back. John, how many movies do you watch a year? Uh, in theater. Uh, oh God. I, I don't know. <laughs> I can probably say at least a hundred, um, at least a hundred in theaters. And then, you know, probably another hundred from, you know, screeners that get sent to me or things like that. So a couple of hundred films a year, probably going in, how much will you want to know about a typical movie that you see? I am different from what a lot of film fans would say. I like to know what a movie's about before I go in and watch it. You know, um, there's a, I, I actually made a documentary film, uh, during the pandemic called movie trailers, a love story where we talk yeah, about on your show, you talk when a big trailer comes out, that's the headline of the show. Often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is so like, there's a long, there's a lot of people who talk about how trailers give away too much. And, and in some cases that's true, but I find there's also the the opposite problem that sometimes this is what killed Blade Runner 2024 when it came out a few years ago, when a movie puts out marketing and they don't even bother to do the basic work of telling the audience, what is this movie about? You know, cause I, I you look at the trailers for Blade Runner 2024 by Denis Villeneuve, brilliant film, by the way, wonderful film, but I watched four trailers, five TV spots. And other than the fact that it was a follow-up to Blade Runner, I couldn't tell you the first thing about what that movie was about. And that ultimately led to, you know, that film being a box office disaster. It's like asking somebody to go into Best Buy and they see on the shelf a white box that just says mystery box, 20 bucks. Well, they're not going to give you 20 bucks. They, they want to know, give me an idea about what's inside it. And that's something that the industry has to try to figure out. Given all this, how many movies you see, how much prep you do, how much you like trailers, where do you find surprise in a movie? I think for me, biggest surprise comes from quality. I mean, that's where really, for, for example, we were just talking about that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. I, I had no hope for that movie. I had no expectations. I had no enthusiasm for that movie. It's a joy when you get to go into something like that and become utterly surprised by the quality of it. You know, here, here's, here's the, the surprises that don't get me is Robert Downey Jr. pops out in a cameo. Okay, that's nice, but that that doesn't add anything to a movie, something like that. It's just when a movie exceeds what you were expecting quality. I, I remember uh, seeing Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse for the first time. I That was a movie that I was convinced was going to be awful. I hated the idea of it. I, I thought only people wanted to see, Spider-Man that people wanted to see was Peter Parker. I didn't like the animation style. And I came out of that movie. It was my third favorite movie of the year. Uh, I mean, only behind uh, A Quiet Place and Black Klansman. That was it. Those are the only two movies I think were better than. So it, those are the things that surprise me and, and what I love. John Campia is the host of the John Campia Show. You should listen to it if you care about movies, trailers, or anything teenage mutant or ninja -y. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. I had a good time. Thanks. And over on Pesca Plus, we have an additional 20 minutes of the interview with John, where we take a look at the past successes and problems with Marvel. And I asked John about his thoughts on Oppenheimer, feeling more exciting and scary because of its real world stakes compared to how Marvel always does their end of the world plots. You can subscribe or upgrade at subscribe.mikepesca.com.
And now the spiel. Let's play Is It a Superconductor? LK99, named for researchers Lee and Kim, who started their work in 1999, they produced a paper claiming superconductor status at room temperature. But like so many things associated with 1999, they were apparently dreaming while they wrote that. Forgive them if it went astray. There were many grainy videos of claims of levitating magnets online. And so we must ask, was it a superconductor? No, it was not a superconductor. There are many superconductors. They do exist. Ever take an MRI or go on one of those monorails, the cool ones? But superconductors only operate at high pressure or high temperature. Then again, enter a lab in Rochester. Maybe they're the ones who invented a room temperature superconductor. The American superconductor was supposedly found by professor in physics and mechanical engineering at the University of Rochester, Ranga P. Diaz. And earlier this year, he said in the journal Physical Review Letters that his lab had discovered a room temperature superconductor. But then this week, nine of the 10 authors of that paper in the Physical Letters Review agreed to a retraction, not Diaz, and then Diaz. Looks like using a commercially available Adobe Illustrator program to draw complicated scientific graphs, that led to the mistake. So was it a superconductor? No, it wasn't a room temperature superconductor. Want to know why it wasn't a superconductor? I'll tell you why. Because nothing's a room temperature superconductor. Just like nothing's cold fusion. I'm no expert. I'm far from an expert. I mean, I know an expert. He's all the way over there. He's far from me. But I'm going to say this. It can happen. We can't invent a thing that solves all the energy problems ever. It's as if we were to invent French fries and chicken parmesan sandwiches that make you lose weight. It can't happen. The universe would implode on itself. But now listen again, to underscore, I'm very much not a scientist. But then again, Lee, Kim, and Ranga P. Diaz are scientists. And those guys are apparently drawing their charts using an etch-a-sketch and documenting their findings with a viewmaster. Don't trust me. Really? I just know there's never been a thing that can do what cold fusion and room temperature superconductors are said to do, which is, I don't know, generate a current that lasts forever, make limitless energy easily. Come on. Also, room temperature itself, when you think about that as, as a thing to chase, isn't room temperature getting hotter, a little hotter over time? Are we talking about the room temperatures of 1999 or today's rooms affected as they are by Bidenomics and the supply chain? What I can add, if not superconductivity at room temperature, is this. I was thumbing through the physical review letters, and I can offer some addenda. W, pointy at the base, suddenly sloping, overly aggressive. B, sort of the mullet of letters, stolid on the left, undulating on the right. I, by the way, think the word boobs should always be capitalized for obvious reasons. U, at first, you'd think you would not, when you look at it, kind of fold back at itself. It wouldn't have that kind of symmetry. It should be more aggressive and pointy, like a, uh, I don't know, like maybe a T or a carrot. But U is evocative of a vase or a vase, depending on your predilections. And it's not just evocative, but it's fundamental to an urn. U is collaborative and inviting of community. So, unlike Korean science claims, I think you is super conducive to sharing. I give you a four-star review in my physical review of letters. 
And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions, Abatement and Mitigation. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For her advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.